whistleblower report exposing lies deceptions and all that has assaulted our way of life we must take back our freedom and live as god designed in a free america that honors our constitution and our creator our experts in medicine, ministry, law, military, environment, and education empower us to grow together as a nation. For such a time as this, the Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. Welcome to the Whistleblower Report. This is Dr. Lee for America with Dr. William Mackis, well-known oncologist from from Canada, who many of you may already be following on Twitter. He is bringing to light the cover-up of the increase in aggressive late-stage cancers that are appearing in the vaccinated patients getting who have gotten the experimental gene therapy COVID shots. It is very, it is truly staggering what we're seeing just in November of 2022 alone in my medical practice, my patient services coordinator commented to me, Dr. Vliet, we have seen more cancers diagnosed in your patients that got the vaccine in this month than I've seen in 18 years working with you. And it, it truly has been uh, very alarming to me personally. I was concerned about this, had done interviews with Dr. Raphael Stricker and others, Dr. Mike Eden in early 2021. And even later in the fall of 2020, we were raising questions about the potential for the experimental mRNA gene therapy shots to actually be involved in not only affecting reproduction and ovarian and testicular function, but all of the endocrine organs and turning off tumor suppressor genes that are our God-given ways of defending against cancer. So we were already raising concerns, but we didn't have data at that point. And now with all the work that Dr. Mackis has been doing in Canada as an oncologist who is seeing firsthand the skyrocketing aggressive turbo cancers, I wanted to have him join us and share with all of you what is happening, why it's happening with these particular injections, unlike traditional vaccines, and what are some of the emerging treatment options that look very, very promising? We'll spend the second half talking about new review articles uh, looking at ivermectin as a potential anti-cancer drug. I'm also, I've also dug into the NIH literature on the use of hydroxychloroquine as an anti-cancer drug in multiple cancers and have shared that data with some of my own cancer patients that are being treated by oncologists, but I'm in the picture as one of their physicians working with them. And then there's also an interesting review that Dr. Mackis has just published 
looking at the combination of fenbendazole in the U.S., a veterinary product, and ivermectin as combined cancer agents. So stay tuned, everyone. This is going to be a very interesting show. Dr. Mackis has been an oncologist in Canada for 13 years with a specialty in neuroendocrine cancers, but looking at and treating cancers across the board. And his specialty training has been in nuclear medicine and radiology and oncology, which is not a combined field as much in the U.S. So this brings a very interesting perspective as you listen to his work with targeted treatments and some of the latest in diagnostic approaches. Dr. Mack is welcome to the Whistleblower Report. Thank you for joining us today. Thank so, you very much for having me. <laughs> tell us a little more about your background and, and then all that you've been doing and what's happening with this explosion of turbo cancers. Well, I'm a Canadian physician based in Alberta, in Edmonton, Alberta. Um, I grew up uh, in communist Czechoslovakia. We fled communism through a United Nations refugee camp uh, in 1988, just before the Berlin Wall fell. I then grew up in Toronto and I did all my schooling, um, uh, undergraduate schooling at the University of Toronto. I have a four-year immunology degree, undergrad degree. And then I did uh, four years of medical school at McGill University and five years of uh, specialization in nuclear medicine, radiology, and oncology. Um, and I've been practicing as a radiologist and oncologist uh, ever since I graduated in 2010. Uh, I'm also a cancer researcher. I have uh, over 100 pub publications in peer-reviewed uh, journals. So that's my background as, as a physician. Um, you know, unfortunately, my cancer program was attacked by the government, uh, by the provincial government and federal government, uh, just a few years before the pandemic. So my cancer program was sabotaged. So I was put in a kind of a semi-retirement uh, when the pandemic hit. Now, that allowed me to be very objective. And so, you know, I wasn't uh, subjected to the same propaganda that Canadian doctors were. I wasn't subjected to the same, you know, threats and restrictions uh, that Canadian doctors were. So it, it gives me a really a unique uh, opportunity to be very objective about the COVID vaccines and about uh, especially the adverse events of the COVID vaccines, the injuries, that the sudden deaths and so on. What happened? What was the reason for your cancer program being targeted by the Canadian government prior to the pandemic? Well, we were we were curing end stage neuroendocrine cancer patients with a cure rate of eighty five to ninety percent with targeted radionuclide therapy, specifically with lutetium one seventy seven uh, based uh, pharmaceuticals, and it was sponsored by Health Canada. We, you know, I was running big clinical trials. I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and the Trudeau government uh, was moved in on on precision cancer treatments uh, around that time. Uh, and uh, is now really heavily invested, have they've invested hundreds of millions of dollars into monopolizing uh, medical isotopes, uh, and they're building huge centers in Vancouver, British Columbia, in collaboration with University of British Columbia, UBC, BC Cancer Agency, and, and local local governments. So it, it was basically, I was just, you know, the wrong in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, we weren't, you know, making big money. This was all uh, funded by Health Canada. 
And, uh, you know, this is a multi-billion dollar industry now, these targeted treatments, because they've discovered that you can do these treatments in end-stage prostate cancer patients, in end-stage breast cancer patients, and those are the two big money makers in cancer, prostate cancer and breast cancer. Uh, and that's when the federal Trudeau government moved in to monopolize these treatments. Oh, my heavens. Is that available in other countries or just Canada? Yes. So so it, it is available. Um, uh, Stanford is, is just building uh, their uh, cancer treatment program. John Hopkins, Memorial Sloan Kettering, um, Mount Sinai in New York. Uh, I've interviewed at, at a lot of these places uh, to help them start their programs. So it is now uh, a field that's exploding in the United States um, because the first FDA approvals came a few years ago. FDA actually sat on this technology for 20 years. They would not approve any of it. Uh, so it was always stuck in clinical trials um, because I think they were probably waiting for the right time to to make the big money. Uh, and now, you know, it's it's looking like a multi-billion dollar industry. And it's part of this movement towards personalized cancer treatments. Now, of course, mRNA is now the big uh, is the big cash cow that they're focused on uh, with, you know, Moderna starting their phase three trials uh, in Australia with a personalized cancer vaccine. Uh, so, you know, I think that maybe some a lot of the focus has shifted and a lot of the money has probably shifted onto mRNA, uh, this, you know, this platform that we've been all uh, attacked with, really. Uh, well, isn't that isn't that a stunning um, connect the dots? They create the mRNA shots that cause turbo cancers and then monopolize the medical isotopes and the targeted radionuclide therapy to treat it. And they well, make money know, both times. I know. And, and, you know, I mean, Dr. David Martin has, has talked about, you know, the involvement of Canada in, in the development of the lipid nanoparticle technology. Uh, and I believe it was university of British Columbia that was behind that. They are behind pushing this, these, these medical isotope, uh, you know, cancer treatments as well. So, you know, you wonder uh, how much of this was was pre-planned uh, really to make way for treatments of of serious reactions to the COVID-19 vaccines. And I can tell you, honestly, when the COVID-19 vaccines rolled out, I was very hesitant because with my oncology background, uh, when I heard that these were going to be lipid nanoparticles that were going to carry mRNA, uh, I had very serious concerns about that because these were technologies that were attempted in oncology. You know, these were cancer treatments that they've worked on for many years. It never worked. You know, the lipid nanoparticles, they've tried to load it up with chemotherapy. Uh, you know, they've tried to find ways to deliver it to certain locations. Um, and it was it was a problematic technology always. And, and mRNA had never been uh, really successfully used in cancer either. So I was shocked when when I found out that they were going to use this as a COVID vaccine in healthy people. I mean, that was a huge, uh, you know, red flag for me. But and 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 when they rolled out these shots in Canada in early 2021, I told my wife, like, we're not we're not participating in this experiment. Like, th this is not something that I want, uh, you know, any anybody in my family to take. Well, good uh, for you. I, you know, I, I had similar red flags because 
I was aware of, I've been in medicine longer than, than you are. And I was aware of the attempts to create a HIV vaccine with the mRNA technology back when, when it broke out and, and that failed, they never could get that off the ground. And, and there were, there were other things that I was aware of from this country in different fields, not in cancer. Yeah. And you so, know, I, but, but, See, I, I mistakenly assumed that they had worked out all the problems, you know, with with the lipid nanoparticles and with the mRNA. And uh, but I still didn't want to participate in the experiment. No, I didn't either. <laughs> I didn't. I, I, and I will admit, I didn't realize the the severity of the adverse events of this of this platform, and how bad it would turn out to be. Uh, you know, I mean, there were signs very early on you know, in terms of the, the, the myocarditis and the blood clots, but it's turned out to be much worse than I ever imagined uh, initially. Well, it, it's hit in, in my practice alone, because I see a very diverse age range from puberty to late life in, in climacteric medicine. And the, it's really um, staggering to see the diversity of organ systems and health consequences in those who got the shots. I tried to to caution my patients not to step into this experimental shot right away. I said, you don't need it. We can treat COVID early. I've been treating everyone that got sick. They did fine. And we don't, you don't need it. And you have XYZ condition that makes it riskier for you because of the effects that we already know. But people were so pressured by other doctors they, or they wanted to travel or their employer it was just um, like a salmon swimming upstream against Niagara Falls, trying to warn them as one as one doctor against the flood. Yeah, exactly. And and you know there was no talking. For example, I wasn't even able to talk to my colleagues uh, about this because they lined themselves up. You know, they got the shots as soon as they could. I mean, and and. The reason why I, I so focused on tracking the, the sudden deaths of Canadian doctors, for example, is because they were the first ones to line up to get the shots. They were the first healthy group to get the COVID vaccines and the, the subsequent boosters. So you would have the doctors, the healthcare workers, and then you'd have you know the age groups, 70 plus, 60 plus, 50 plus, and sort of a, in a staggered way. But the doctors were always the first ones and they were the young, healthy group and so you could see the adverse events um, with doctors. And, and, you know, once the booster shots started rolling out and I saw doctors starting to die in their sleep, doctors in their 40s and 50s. Which know. has just been unheard of. I mean, yeah. people, people are the narrative from our governments, yours and mine and the other Western governments uh, is trying to normalize this. It is absolutely criminal that they are covering up the fact that this is a staggering death toll from from these ex, this experiment and the matter and the manner of death as well you know i i i simply had not seen in my career you know people in their 30s and 40s dying in their sleep i never uh, did either with no symptoms like with with no warning signs no past medical history they just go to sleep and they never woke, wake up I, I think the 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 general population doesn't realize just just how rare those kind of incidents were in the past and, and now it, they it, were almost non-existent common. in the past dr Marcus, 
I, I started medical school in 1975. So I have a whole, I have a whole lifetime in medicine compared to the time you've been in the field. And yep. it's, it never, never have I seen anything like this. Even, I mean, I can't even think of one patient in their 30s and 40s over my entire lifetime in medicine who died suddenly in their sleep with no known symptoms yeah. ever. So, and, and the fact that, that the, the government narratives are normalizing this and say, oh, well, it happens. Children have strokes. No, they don't. Yeah, yeah. It's the, the normalization of all of these incidents is just absolutely shocking. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, people people are trusting and, you know, they've trusted the health authorities. They've trusted their doctors. Uh, and I think people have, you know, a lot of people have still no idea just how abnormal all of this is. Well, they are marinated like tea bags in hot water in the lies of the mainstream media that is corporate controlled by all of the powers that have designed all of this assault on humanity. And people will not turn off CNN and MSNBC and all of those channels or BBC or the Canadian broadcast government run channel. So it, it, it really is. I mean, we are, you and I and many, many other dedicated physicians and scientists and activists have been trying to warn people for the whole three years this has been going on. And yeah, slowly and it, they're waking up, but only because they know someone who died. And it's shocking to see the health authorities, even just a few weeks ago, in, in Canada and United States, recommending the booster shots as if there have been no adverse events in the last three years. And, oh, recommending I know. It, and recommending it in children as young as six months old. This is just absolutely shocking. It's coming from Health Canada. It's coming from the FDA. Uh, you know, the, these recommendations for everyone to take the booster shots as young as six months old, really as if we've had no adverse events in the last three years at all. I know. It's it's like they're, they're pushing it like it's candy. Yeah. Well, Let's get it. It really is shocking. It is very alarming, and the, and the fact that the 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 longevity of the adverse effects. I am seeing because I'm I'm following, as I said, a lot of patients, different ages, different medical problems, and I'm in anyone who's gotten the shot. I'm checking a D dimer at every appointment, and what is very. I've also been monitoring their spike protein antibodies. Because I'm curious, I was curious when we'd start to see them turn down. Well, the alarming thing is they're not turning down. They yeah. tend to be rising over time. And so does in many of these patients, the D-dimer is rising. And, and so it's, it's very, very concerning that people are a walking time bomb and don't know it. If doctors, most doctors are not checking a lot of the markers that I'm doing. Yeah. And and they won't do it because I've had my patients ask their doctors to do it. And I'm the only one that will. Right. And what's, what's really frightening is how many people don't even know that they're building all these micro blood clots that are 
beginning over time, then we'll coalesce and create the sudden death syndrome or stroke or heart attack, all the complications. What's what's fascinating is that even though people have stopped taking the booster shots, uh, it seems the damage um, continues. And and if anything, uh, it seems these incidents are on the rise. Uh, yes. I'm, I'm still seeing people dying in their sleep. I'm still seeing, you know, athletic people collapsing on the field. And it's not just the athletes. It's, it's regular people who, you know, they're, they're into fitness. They love going to the gym. Uh, they, they do some kind of a sport recreationally and they're collapsing uh, while playing, you know, a particular sport. Uh, it, these incidents seem to be steadily increasing. And, you know, when it comes to the turbo cancers, uh, I, the amount of cases that I've seen this year in 2023 is, is higher than what I saw in 2021 and 2022. It seems to be on the rise. So, so it seems that all of this is long-term damage. A lot of these people stopped taking booster shots, you know, uh, a year ago in Canada, only 6% of Canadians have taken a booster shot in the last six months. So 94% of Canadians have not taken a shot in the last six months and would be considered um, you know, not up to date on their vaccines, according to Health Canada. Right. So this right. really seems to be long term effects, you know, damage that just continues, sort of cumulative damage. Um, and uh, the incidents, the the injuries, the disabilities and the deaths, they continue to rise on, on, on a steadily steady basis. Well, I, I agree with that from the observations in my own medical practice and what I'm hearing from other doctors. So I, I think this is why the urgency of our combined work is so critically important. And, and you are just doing an incredible job with the cancer data and the sudden deaths data that you're putting out on social media. My account got canceled and I, I now have a very small account that's still being censored. So uh, it's very frustrating. I'm just grateful for all you do, and I'm saving your information. Thank I you, really Gina. would like to have you have a platform with Truth for Health Foundation if you are interested, because we could create a, a place on our website, which is not in Canada, yeah. and, and for the cancer report from Dr. Mackis and let you just put all your data there for us to push out. And we've got the Truth Hub channel with Todd Callender um, that is not censored. And then the whistleblower report. We, we just, it, it is so urgent. But this point about, let's go, let's talk about what you think is happening physiologically that contributes to, number one, why the cancers are occurring. What did the mRNA technology do that, that leads to that? I, I'm aware of some of the mechanisms, but you're the expert. I want you to explain it. And then what do you think is contributing to the ongoing damage? What are some of those mechanisms? And then in the second half, we'll talk some about some treatment options. You know, so, so there's, there's a number of possible mechanisms uh, by which the, the COVID-19 vaccines seem to be giving rise to these very aggressive cancers, these turbo cancers that are showing up at stage four in young people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, a lot of it seems to uh, center around damage to the immune system. And, you know, that's sort of a kind of a broad way of putting it is that 
there seems to be damage to immune cells, T cells, uh, their signaling. Their, their signaling seems to be affected. These, these T cells end up, you know, it seems like they're, they're unable to continue performing their function. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's almost a type of uh, very severe immune dysfunction and immune suppression. It seems to build over time. Uh, so it seems to get worse over time. Uh, so there is a time element there. Uh, and from the data that I was looking at, uh, the Canadian data, the Australian data, when they first started rolling out the vaccines in the double vaccinated, what I noticed was the, the negative vaccine efficacy that was starting to be reported in, in late 2021 and early 2022 really seems to reach a maximum somewhere between 6 to 12 months after your last COVID vaccine. And this is where uh, these people, and let's let's take the double vaccinated, uh, six to 12 months after their second shot, they were the most susceptible to getting infected with COVID-19. Uh, they were, they had, you know, the most severe infections. They were the ones who were dying in the hospitals. Um, and really that was the maximum damage that we saw to the immune system, six to 12 months after your second shot. Of course, a lot of these people went on to have a booster shot, right? And so then the people who had the booster shot, then six to 12 months after their booster shot, they were doing the worst by far. And and that's really in Canada in, in mid-2022, that's when the Canadian government stopped reporting all vaccine status data of people in the hospital because it was the triple vaccinated at the time were filling up the hospitals, they were filling up the intensive care units, and they were dying at the highest numbers of any group. And so you could see this, this, this cumulative immune system damage, the more shots you took, the more immune system damage you had. And it was manifesting itself with, with these, let's say, triple vaccinated people now getting recurrent COVID infections, they were getting you know, influenza infections, they were they were coming down with severe strep infections, and meningitis, sepsis, and they were dying. They were dying from these infections. Previously healthy people, after multiple shots, and this immune system damage, they were dying from, from various, from all kinds of infections. So you could tell that their immune system was severely damaged. And this seems to be translating to cancers in a lot of cases. So this this impairment of T cells, T cell signaling, is is a major aspect of this um, recent discovery a few months ago of the IgG4 antibody shift. Uh, this seems to be uh, again manifesting in people who've had three shots or more. It starts when you've had two shots. The, the your, your immune system starts shifting uh, the type of antibodies that it your immune system produces. Shifts from IgG1 and IgG3, which are involved in protecting you against viruses and cancer, and you start producing more IgG4, which actually builds tolerance to the spike protein, but it also, you start to lose your cancer surveillance, and, and, and the cancers now, through the IgG4, they have ability to evade the immune system and escape the immune system, so now they can grow uncontrollably. So this has been discovered again a few months ago. I've published a, a paper on this and the shift is very, very large. So so if you've had your third shot, you, you're, you're now producing 500 times the IgG4 
than when you were than when you've had you know your first two shots only. So it really explodes once you start having the booster shots. And you know we're seeing a lot of reports of this. Some of these turbo cancers really show up in people who've had their booster shot. And people, let's say, you know, Professor Daglish in the UK, St. George's um, University in London, has been reporting this in his patients, saying that, you know, the patients he's had who were in remission, you know, melanoma patients, melanoma cancer patients, as soon as they had their booster shot, their cancer comes roaring back. It's more aggressive than it's ever been. And, you know, it takes their life in a matter of months. Uh, so, you know, this is one of, the, again, one of the possible uh, mechanisms that might be, you know, accounting for this explosion of cancers. Uh, and Would then, you send me a, uh, a link or a, a copy of your paper and we'll post sure. it on our website, the IgG4 shift? Sure, absolutely. Um, any papers you'd like us to publish on our website, um, connected with this show, just email me the, the, the PDFs and we'll, we'll get them up for people to read. Certainly. Thank you. you. There, there's, there's been papers, um, that have reported, uh, the spike protein interacting or interfering with, uh, you know, tumor suppressor proteins like P53 and BRCA1. And these are tumor suppressor proteins uh, that are, are involved in, in development of many cancers. Um, you know, BRCA1, obviously, breast cancers, ovarian cancers. Uh, P53 is, is involved in a lot of cancers, you know, colon cancers, lung cancers, and so on. Uh, so there's that element of it as well. Uh, and, and, you know, a big one, the big scandal recently... Uh, is the discovery of the DNA contamination in, yes. the, in the Pfizer and Moderna vials, vaccine vials. And, you know, that seems to be a very, very big scandal, a big problem. Um, this DNA contamination, these DNA plasmids, which they the both Pfizer and Moderna use in manufacturing, you know, they put the entire spike protein sequence uh, in these DNA plasmids, they stick it into E. coli, they grow these E. coli to billions and billions of um, copies, then they extract it and they're supposed to make the mRNA out of it, you know, with the modified pseudouridine and all of that. And it seems that uh, they don't get rid of this DNA once the manufacturing process is done, that it stays behind. Um, and, you know, uh, Kevin McKernan, US geneticist, has discovered these plasmids and he's discovered all kinds of DNA fragments of various lengths these contaminants present in Pfizer and Moderna vials. Uh, and this is a big risk for integration into our genome and integration into places where it could cause serious problems. Yes. Uh, you know, if you're integrating into, you know, a, a tumor suppressor gene, you knock out the tumor suppressor gene. Now, again, you've lost uh, protection against cancer. Uh, and the as if that wasn't bad enough, uh, you know, and this, I mean, by itself, that is a huge, huge problem. Um, on top of that, you've got the discovery of a, an SV40, uh, simian virus 40 sequence in, in the Pfizer vials in these DNA plasmids, uh, which is an oncogenic virus, which causes lymphomas and, and, and aggressive brain cancers in people. And the sequence, a part of it, the promoter sequence is present 
in this in these DNA plasmids and this DNA contamination of these vials. So it, it's just bad news after bad news after bad news. Uh, and we're really, um, you know, it's almost like a hurricane of of bad news right now that's coming out about the vaccines and the just all the possible ways that it these vaccines can be causing cancer. Well, I, I really appreciate the summary of of those that those big major mechanisms, and this is definitely something the public is being lied to about. And I'm just grateful for the courage that, that you've shown in continuing to expose this. Let's take a, a quick break and then we'll be right back and, and talk further about the possibilities for treatment. This is Dr. Lee for America with the Whistleblower Report from Truth for Health Foundation. Go to our website, www.truthforhealth.org. Download our vaccine injury treatment guide. Download our COVID early treatment guide, our hemorrhagic fever fact sheet, and all of the resources for medical and legal help. And tune in to our whistleblower reports. Check the archive. We've discussed a lot of these topics that affect your life and your health. We'll be right back after the break. Hello, everyone. This is Lieutenant Mark Bashaw, U.S. Army and legal grant recipient of the Truth for Health Foundation. I want to give a huge shout out to the Truth for Health Foundation for helping me and my family over the past year with our legal battles. Recently, I was court-martialed for not participating with these experimental COVID-19 emergency use authorized products. If it wasn't for Truth for Health Foundation and all the support, I would definitely be in a worse spot. But because of all the support, I'm able to continue uniform service, fighting for what's right, to protect the Constitution against enemies, foreign and domestic. God bless each and every one of you, and God bless America. Welcome back to the second half of the Whistleblower Report. Dr. Lee for America here with Dr. William Mackis, one of the courageous leading oncologists in Canada who has been exposing the COVID shots connection with turbo cancers and the sudden death syndrome. You can follow him on Twitter and he's going to give us all of his social media accounts to put in the show notes, check them out, check out his Substack. incredibly insightful, well-researched, in-depth articles that can affect your life and your health. You can't afford to miss his work. Welcome back, Dr. Mackis, and thank you for all that you're doing. You really are saving lives with warning people about people whose lives you'll never know you've touched have been touched by all the work you're putting into this. I don't know how you have time to sleep with all of the productivity that you're doing, but I'm just grateful for all that you're doing to help others. That is truly uh, a mission of love for humanity. So thank you. Let's go ahead with what you were talking about, the turbo cancers. What are you seeing as options? I mean, these, these patients have very, very aggressive late-stage cancer when they're even diagnosed. What, what, are, what is the hope for treatment? Well, first, I want to just briefly uh, describe what types of cancers I'm seeing 
you know which which types of people I'm seeing it in. Um, the most common turbo cancers with these COVID vaccines seem to be lymphomas, lymphomas, brain cancers, glioblastomas. Um, the lymphomas tend to be very large. The glioblastomas, I mean, these these are presenting at at end stage, often inoperable. And then uh, leukemias, uh, these are very, very aggressive. So the leukemias, uh, they're showing up in, in some teenagers as well, teenagers, people in their 20s, 30s, um, and they can kill in a matter of weeks, days, or even hours in some cases after diagnosis. Oh, my heavens. So oncologists really don't even have time to prepare a proper treatment uh, plan, and the patient could die. Right. Uh, so so th- these are very urgent cases. If, if, if you're diagnosed with a with leukemia and you've had COVID vaccines, this is an emergency. This is extremely an urgent situation. And then, you know, you've got the solid cancers like breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, hepatobiliary cancers. So this would be uh, cancers of the bile duct or gallbladder or pancreas. Uh, these tend to be very, very aggressive Colon cancers presenting at stage four in people in their 20s and 30s, completely unheard of uh, situations. Um, and then uh, just sort of rounding out the, the top five, top six, uh, lung cancers presenting at stage four, some melanomas, some renal cell cancers, uh, and then the odd, very aggressive ovarian cancer, or cervical cancer, so uh, and the sarcomas and testicular cancers in young men. Testicular cancers are hitting young men. I can tell you in the German Bundesliga and in the various German uh, professional soccer clubs, I think there's over a dozen cases of testicular cancer just in the last year. You know, over my career, that was extremely rare. Testicular cancer was, was it happened, but it was extraordinarily rare. And again, presenting at a late stage where it already started spreading uh, and again, these are men in their 20s and 30s presenting with basically stage stage four testicular cancer. So people should have an idea of the types of cancers that are associated with the vaccines, the age range, anywhere from, you know, late teens to, you know, 20s and 30s. A lot of university students who are mandated to take COVID vaccines, university and college students, you know, they're coming down with these cancers. And really, you see it in every vaccine-mandated profession. So doctors, nurses, all kinds of healthcare workers, uh, uh, first responders, you know, the paramedics, police officers, firefighters, teachers is another big category. Teachers were forced to take COVID vaccines to keep their jobs. Uh, Military, right? So anywhere where there was a very aggressive vaccine mandate, you see a uh, a lot of these cancers. So the problem, the treatment is is a problem. It's a problem because um, these cancers don't seem to respond well to conventional chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And this is what's really baffling oncologists is that not only are they faced with a young person who presents at stage four, they try to treat them with the conventional treatment protocols and they're not working. Uh, or even if, if they are working, you know, you get a partial response. It doesn't last. A couple of months later, you find that tumor is growing again. Um, so these are very aggressive cancers that are not responding to conventional treatments, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and some immunotherapies as well. So what do you do with these? Right. This this is a this is a very serious problem. Um, my inbox uh, mailbox is flooded with with tragic cases. 
where uh, the oncologists, you know, throw up their hands and they say, well, we have, you know, we don't know what to do. We have nothing else to offer you uh, as the patients are failing, you know, the various uh, chemo radiation regimens. So, um, you know, this is where you have to get really creative uh, and think about, okay, what, what can people try um, that, you know, that they can get access to uh, themselves uh, to give themselves some chance of, of survival. Uh, and, and this is where, you know, we come to things like ivermectin and fenbendazole, um, these, you know, anti-parasitic drugs that have very significant anti-cancer properties. Um, you know, I've, I've done a, a review on both ivermectin and fenbendazole recently, and it was amazing to see that there is a tremendous amount of research. Um, now, this is sort of preclinical research, uh, you know, in vitro and in vivo research, you know, uh, mouse models, uh, cell lines, and so on. But there is a tremendous amount of research showing very strong cancer, anti-cancer effects of ivermectin uh, and fenbendazole. Um, and so these are very interesting to me as an oncologist now, of course, we we know that ivermectin has been smeared by the medical establishment um, for its use in 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 treating COVID nineteen, where it's it's you know some doctors in the states especially have had tremendous success with it. Yes, no, you're right, you're right. And and so it, it's a medication that that's already been smeared. You know, it's been smeared completely by the medical establishment, uh, and people have had trouble even accessing it. Uh, I can tell you, you, you cannot get it from a doctor in Canada. Uh, even at this point is, is no doctor will prescribe it because they'll lose their medical license. And this is for, you know, for COVID-19. Uh, forget about well, and Dr. Mackis, the ivermectin in the U S has their CVS pharmacy has instituted a corporate policy to interfere with our physician prescriptions on hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. They simply refused to fill it. And I personally had a CVS pharmacist in Colorado threaten to report me because I was prescribing hydroxychloroquine for a patient of mine. You know, it happened, I was prescribing it for something else, but the pharmacist decided without even knowing the patient, without evaluating the patient, because they're not yeah. physicians, that I was prescribing it for COVID. I mean, this is criminal. This is it is criminal, this, absolutely this is criminal. The fact that pharmacies are are basically practicing medicine. Yep. Uh, without knowing the patient, without seeing the patient, uh, and that they're interfering in 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 the patient's you know management. Uh, to me, that is absolutely criminal. I don't know if you have CVS in Canada, but CVS is a national chain in the U.S., and that is the one that has been the worst. I have had the most interference with my physician prescriptions of carefully evaluated patients from CVS pharmacists than I've ever had in my entire life in medicine. It's, it's outrageous. I finally have told my patients, I will not put a prescription at CVS pharmacy. If you want to deal with them, you're going to have to go take it in person and fight with the pharmacist. Right. You know, it, it's, it's, it's even worse in Canada in the sense that the pharmacies don't even have to really interfere with with the prescriptions because no doc no doctor is brave enough to write a prescription because they'll lose their license 
uh, they'll lose their job probably within uh, you know a matter of days, and then wow. and eventually lose their license. The colleges have threatened doctors uh, against you know prescribing ivermectin, and then you know the health authorities throughout Canada, if they find out you're prescribing ivermectin, you're done. You know you're. You know, that we had is em- just criminal. I, it's criminal. What, it's absolutely criminal. Is anything criminal. being done on the legal front in Canada? Uh, you know, it, it's the problem is is that we have corrupt judges, um, and the judges in Canada are really all they're they're loyal to the Trudeau government, to the federal government, and and really the 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 judges that Justin Trudeau has been appointing, he's been appointing people who've donated to the Liberal Party. And who have strong ties to the Liberal Party, and 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 you know they they told the party line, so you know we really haven't had any major legal victories in Canada throughout the entire COVID nineteen pandemic. Whereas in the United States, you know you have much much more possibility of of you know some good judges and you know the states implementing various uh, different uh, rules, you know in regards to something like ivermectin being available, made made available and so on. But we just don't have that in Canada, unfortunately. No, I've been watching the tyranny escalate in Canada. We had, was working with some Canadian physicians, lawyers and businessmen in 2020. And it's just, the tyranny has just skyrocketed. It, basically, Canada today is no different from my experiences um, on an educational mission with a program to the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe in the 1970s. Yep. So I know what you're talking about. And you escaped communist Czechoslovakia to to come to a country that was free and has now become just as draconian as the communist country that you left. You know, I mean, Canada was was really, I mean, paradise uh, for immigrants uh, when we immigrated from communist countries. And you know, it, it it was fine until, you know, the past, I'd say the past decade or so. Initially, it was just a slow creep. And over the last few years, there's just been a, you know, really a, an acceleration towards full-blown communism. Well, uh, Trudeau it, has definitely accelerated <laughs> it uh, as a rocket. And you see it with the attacks on, on freedom of speech and, of course, the, you know, attack on attacks on the media. Um, which are really, really aggressive right now. Uh, but, you know, during the pandemic, we saw restriction of movement. So you had 6 million unvaccinated Canadians who couldn't get on a plane, couldn't, gonna, couldn't, couldn't get on a train within the country to just to go from province to province. Um, we were literally prisoners in our own country, right? And yet, you know, people are crossing the border illegally, unvaccinated, no problem. Uh, but if you were a Canadian citizen, you know, you weren't allowed to travel. And, and that is straight out of, you know, the Iron Curtain co- communist countries. Absolutely it is. Where you, where you couldn't cross the border. You couldn't go to any Western country. You could only travel within, you know, local communist countries. Uh, but it, it is that same type of communism. And of course, now we've got, you know, this this talk about the 15 minute cities and it's being pushed by. A number of city councils. I actually live in a city that's probably going to end up being a 15-minute city here in Edmonton because our city council, which is far left, uh, a lot of the city governments are far far leftist governments, municipal governments. Uh, they're already pushing the idea of how wonderful 15-minute cities are going to be. Uh, so we've already have this on our doorstep here. It it truly is very very chilling. 
and particularly I didn't live in a communist country, but I was in about six of them in the period from 1974 to 1979 with this educational program we were doing at the time. My husband had designed it and it was State Department approved. It was what I could literally feel the oppression yeah. as I walked the streets and uh, it was palpable. You could tell in the way people wouldn't look at you. They, they, it was, it was something I have remembered my entire life. I was just, I was just in my twenties. It was so shocking that I've remembered it my whole life. That's partly why I fight so hard to expose all of this now. Absolutely. Well, back to the treatment with yeah. with ivermectin. Now, just to clarify for our Americans who are listening to this, fenbendazole is an antiparasitic drug in the United States approved by the FDA for the veterinary market. So if you're worried about your pets, it's a great drug. In, in terms of me as a human physician rather than a veterinary physician, I cannot prescribe it for humans. But the same class of medicine has two FDA-approved drugs for people, albendazole and mebendazole, and those are available in commercial pharmacies, except for CVS that won't fill any of my prescriptions for any of these things. One of the things that I wonder about, if fenbendazole has been studied for anti-cancer properties that are synergistic with or additive, even if not synergistic, if they're additive with ivermectin, what about the possibility that the people-approved drugs, fenbendazole, uh, sorry, um, mebendazole and albendazole, might be considered in combination as anti-cancer therapy? It would be off-label, but it's an option. Right. And you know what, I would almost, uh, I would almost look at them as as two separate, two separate regimens that you could do, you could do both, right? Um, there isn't as much information on combining them. But when I was looking at uh, ivermectin, uh, now people, people have used it for, um, you know, for COVID-19. And you know, you've got the three, three milligrams, six milligram, 12 milligram pills. But when it comes to turbo cancer, and this is what I want to stress is that this is a desperate situation. These are very, you know, these are extremely aggressive cancers that are fatal in a matter of usually six to 12 months, but sometimes less than that. Um, and so um, if if you're looking at really um, sort of hitting this cancer hard and getting a, at least a chance at a cure, you, you probably want to try higher doses. Um, so with ivermectin, um, you know, there are anecdotal reports of people taking one milligram per kilogram or two milligrams per kilogram, which is, you know, that's like 10 times the dose that uh, people have taken for, for COVID-19. However, uh, it seems to be safe. It's, it's both ivermectin and fenbendazole seem to have a really uh, an amazing safety profile. So with ivermectin, there's actually published literature showing that you know, two milligrams per kilogram is actually a safe dose to take and that there's no adverse events. Um, but, you know, it is a high dose, certainly, but um, 
I think with with turbo cancers, you you I think you need uh, a higher dose, preferably than you know a, a lower dose that you might just take uh, for for COVID nineteen infection, for example. And so um, so that's well, and if you're facing death, exactly, then the person, what the way I look at it. And, and I am not an oncologist, so, but in general, when patients of mine under cancer treatment have asked about pros and cons of various approaches, if they are facing a death sentence and traditional therapies, radiation and chemo and immunotherapy are not working, they're not, the person's not responding, it's we have in the U.S. legislation referred to as right to try. So okay. patients yeah. have the right to try an experimental treatment. Now, normally that means a drug. I mean, it was passed to help people have access to a drug that was not yet FDA approved, that it could be released by the manufacturer for um compassionate use in a terminally ill situation. Yes. But off-label use of FDA-approved products has been something that United States physicians have been allowed to do under the regulations since the FDA was started in 1934. There is yep. nothing illegal or immoral or unethical about that. We do, It's 20% of U.S. doctors prescribing on a daily basis, off-label use of existing medicines. Yep. So, yeah. My my approach when I'm advising patients is that if you are facing a death sentence and the cancer is not responding, it's up to you to decide what you want to do to try. You are you are an individual with free will. You can choose to try something. And you know, the the oncologist may not agree and they may not want to prescribe it. But the patient has a right to seek other resources to yes. to obtain it and try it. I think I think the situation we're in right now is that oncologists, uh, the vast majority of oncologists, have not recognized this phenomenon of COVID vaccine induced turbo cancers. Uh, they don't seem to realize that there's a connection between the COVID vaccines and then these aggressive cancers that are arising afterwards. There's very few oncologists in the world right now who are speaking about it. You know, myself, Professor Daglish, uh, Dr. Harvey Reich, uh, Yale epidemiologist and cancer researcher, as well as talking about this now as well. Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Ryan Cole, uh, Dr. Pierre Corey, uh, you know, those of us who have been speaking out about the dangers of, of COVID-19 vaccines are recognizing this phenomenon of turbo cancers. Oncologists, by and large, have not recognized this. So they will not even think of this. They will not suggest this to you, um, you know, if you're faced in the, with this situation. And even if the patient brings it to them, they they probably would not have the courage to right. to prescribe a, a, a high dose ivermectin regimen. So as as you mentioned, people, you know, they have to get resourceful. Uh, they have to find, you know, perhaps creative ways of of uh, you know taking finding the source of ivermectin and and you know maybe creating a regimen for themselves but you know there's there's tremendous evidence in the literature to back you know the various uh anti-cancer mechanisms of actions for ivermectin this this is not controversial this is not 
you know, there's pub there's extensive published literature on this. Uh, it has at least you know 15 different mechanisms of actions through the various pathways. The pathways are very complicated. Uh, you know, anything from inducing tumor cell death, apoptosis, autophagy, to blocking, you know, tumor progression, tumor growth, tumor proliferation, invasion, metastases, uh, you know, uh, inducing mitochondrial dysfunction in cancer cells, uh, affecting the tumor microenvironment, uh, inhibiting cancer stem cells. So there's cancer stem cells that ivermectin can actually block or kill. Um, uh, uh, blocking tumor angiogenesis. So this is the ability of tumors to create blood vessels to help them grow. Ivermectin stops that. So there is really a, tr you know, there are numerous mechanisms by which ivermectin acts. And I think high dose ivermectin is something that, you know, people faced with these turbo cancers should absolutely look into. So that's, well, that's we ivermectin. will post your um, review that you just did the latest two um, emails that I received with the alerts about your Substack articles yes. on the reviews of ivermectin as an anti-cancer agent, and then ivermectin plus fenbendazole. We will yeah. post that as links with the show so that everyone can go and take the time to dig through it. They are extraordinarily well done. It's going to take me, even as a physician who understands the medical terms that you're writing about, it's going to take me some time to dig through and put all the pieces together. But also, there are nutraceuticals that we've been using as part of our vaccine injury approach that would tie in with exactly those mechanisms that you're talking about for ivermectin and would support, complement its actions. So I'd like to get back together with you on some of this. And actually, I'll invite you to give one of our Tuesday seminars on this where you'd have a chance to do it by video to reach a group of people who tune in every week from around the world and use graphics because that helps people be able to see some of this. So we'll yeah. be in touch about that. Absolutely. And any closing words today as we wrap up the radio show, we'll have you back and you have an open invitation to join our platform and present your work. Certainly. And just to uh, just to wrap up my thoughts on fenbendazole, you know, this has gained popularity because there's been, uh, you know, some anecdotes of people curing their cancers with fenbendazole. It is a veterinary medication. It's not FDA approved. However, it has a very good safety profile in animals and humans. As you mentioned, there is an FDA approved human version called mebendazole. Uh, there's also albendazole. Mebendazole is actually uh, in clinical trials right now um, that are looking at uh, brain cancers and colon cancers and using it in that. So, so these are not controversial medications. There's a huge body of research. And I would encourage people, if you're in this desperate situation or you have a loved one in this desperate situation, please look into high-dose ivermectin or, or fenbendazole uh, or both. And, and look into some of these regimens that are out there and give yourself give yourself a fighting chance because your oncologist is not going to have anything uh, to offer you. And you know right now there's a there's an Australian doctor, Professor Scolier, uh, a famous pathologist uh, and a melanoma researcher who came down with end stage brain cancer, uh, which may have been caused by his COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, which all Australian doctors were forced to take to keep their jobs. 
And he is actually now being used by Moderna uh, to, they're trying their mRNA personalized cancer vaccine on him. He's one. Of, he's the first person in the world to take a personalized mRNA cancer vaccine outside of clinical trials. And so, but this is the, this is the way that big pharma is going, right? And, and this is big money, big pharma, uh, you know, mRNA vaccines that, that probably are not going to work in cancer as they didn't work, you know, with COVID-19, but this is a multi-billion dollar industry and they don't care about ivermectin. They don't care about fenbendazole. They're not going to do those clinical trials. In fact, the personalized cancer vaccine uh, Moderna is doing it in partnership with Merck, and Merck sabotaged ivermectin, their own drug, yes. early on in the COVID pandemic by saying it doesn't work for COVID-19. And now Merck is a partner with Moderna in these personalized cancer vaccines that are in phase three trials in Australia. So again, Merck is set to make billions and billions of dollars, um, and they, they sabotaged you know, ivermectin to, to get there. You know, I wondered at the time, what was the hidden agenda that Merck did that? Because I saw it at the time and I thought, yeah, there's something there's something afoot that they would sabotage their own drug. They're getting into the mRNA business. That's 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 the bottom line. And and again, they're going to be rewarded for sabotaging ivermectin. They're going to be rewarded with a multi-billion dollar partnership with Moderna with mRNA cancer vaccines. This is at least one of the discoveries that I've made recently. Uh, it's it's disgusting, uh, but this is the way big pharma operates. Yep. And so, you know, there's hope. I think in terms of these COVID vaccine turbo cancers, I don't think people should lose hope. Uh, certainly, you know, if the oncologist is not going to help you, you're going to have to help yourself. But, you know, there are these... Uh, medications like ivermectin, fenbendazole, I would urge people to look into them and, and give them a shot. Excellent, Dr. Marcus. And that fits with the whole philosophy of Truth for Health Foundation. Our goal has been to empower patients to have balanced, medically sound, truthful information to make informed consent and design approaches that are combining medications, foods, anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer, immune-boosting foods, and nutraceuticals, and put it together in an organized way to improve health and resilience. That's, that's one of our major pillars of our efforts in this public charity. And I just thank you for your words of wisdom, your reasoned approach, and the, your willingness to courageous, courageously speak the truth. So, Thank you for joining us and come back and be part of our truth team. Thank you very much for having me. Check out our website, everyone, truthforhealth.org. We have many resources for you. Whatever the emerging threats are, whatever the fear mongering, we have resources to help you have truth over fear and faith over fear. www.truthforhealth.org. Join our crusade. We are silent no more.